0: On this episode, our third of four episodes celebrating women during Women's History Month in March, the Brad Pitt of Cougars, Wildlife Overcrossings, and the 405 to the 101 to the 5 to Liberty Canyon. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. hosts severia tilden jeff hester and jason fitzpatrick well i am incredibly excited to have our next guest i i have i've heard quite a bit about her we have a, a great mutual friend from griff who was on the podcast not long ago and of course just recently there was all over the la times a great article about her please welcome to the show beth pratt beth thanks for coming on
1: Jason, thanks for having me, and thanks to Griff too. He's my brother from another mother, soul brother I call him. So I'm glad he connected us.
0: Yeah, his birthday was yesterday. This will air a couple weeks from now, but but happy, slightly belated birthday to Griff.
1: Yes, happy birthday to Griff. Happy
0: birthday. I think one, collectively, one of our favorite guests too. So oh,
1: so. you can, he's just amazing. So so go
0: back and listen to the Griff episode if you haven't already, John Griff. It, it, it's fantastic, but. I mean, well, why don't we dive right in? Um, obviously, the big news recently was is the overpass news over the Santa Susana Pass, the wildlife thing. Your, your field of interest is wildlife, but mostly mountain lions, right? And how did that get started? And why don't you tell us a little about, bit about the wildlife crossing that, that they're working on?
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, wildlife's just part of my DNA. I've always wanted to work with animals since I was a little girl and... I used to collect frogs and put them in a bucket and name them George and study them. And then as my mom, I don't remember this, but my mom told me I would tell her that I uh, would release them back to their families at night. So I would only study them during the day and then (laughs) let them go home. Um, But yeah, for me, it's just part of my DNA, whether it be cougars or like yesterday, I was out studying butterflies. So I... I always knew I wanted to work, uh, to, you know, to be a voice for wildlife and for the environment. So I just, you know, I, it's been a lot of hard work, but I feel really lucky to get to do that and and to be an advocate. Because as we know, wildlife, you know, they, they don't have a voice, uh, you know, they don't know how to post on social media. So I do that on behalf of P22. <laughs> um, but the crossing, wow, what a gift of a lifetime. Uh, it has taken over my life for a decade. It has been, it's been a lot of work and a lot of personal sacrifice, but we have a great team of partners I work with and it's going to happen now. I'm a little dizzy. It's kind of like I I used to run marathons uh, before my knees gave out and, you know, it's sort of like you start the first mile and you can't think about mile 26, uh, but we're like at mile 25 and a half now, and in some respects that last half mile is a little harder to run than the rest, uh, but it's amazing. It's, uh, it's going to happen. This impossible dream um, is going to happen. We are going to be breaking ground. Uh, we don't have an exact date yet stay tuned. Very soon we should. We're just waiting for the bid to come back from Caltrans and to get finalized, but we'll be breaking ground in a month or two. And for me, we had to. There was, you know, there was, when I started working on this with the other partners 10 years ago, even though we were told it could never be done, there was too much at stake. The mountain lines were going to go extinct. And I knew I just couldn't let that happen. And so for me, that's what it's about. I can now look at P-22's photos and be like, I got your back buddy we did it
2: (laughs) we have listeners from all over so we're all sort of southern california based so p22 and the wild wildlife overpass like these are all things that like we know exactly what you're talking about but i think let's take a step back and Mm -hmm. why don't you introduce who the heck is p22 and what is this wildlife overpass we're talking about because the work that you've done is so amazing um let's maybe start a little bit more at the beginning
1: of the journey no, good, good, good points, Vera. Although at this point, come on, P-22 is the Brad, <laughs> he's as famous as Brad Pitt. Like, who doesn't know P-22? It's like not knowing Brad The glamour favorite. shot at yeah. the <laughs> Hills. The I
2: mean, glamour
3: shot literally... with the Hollywood sign <laughs> in the background, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I
1: mean, you'd have to be living under a rock, uh, but no, uh, case in point. And for those not from Southern California, we refer to our freeways, they are entities in our world as the so if i say the 101 that means a freeway just so that's that's la lingo we revere and worship our freeways here in california but yeah for the uninitiated the few whoever you are out there and and i'm from the (laughs) east coast i'm from massachusetts originally so i have a kind of a good east west coast thing i you know uh, P-22 is an amazing mountain lion. Um, he, I do call him the Brad Pitt of the cougar world, uh, because much like Brad, he's aged well. He's a very handsome cougar. <laughs> uh, he is beloved by people all over the world, but he struggles with his dating life. And uh, He lives in the middle of L.A., like literally, not. this is not the outskirts of L.A., this is Griffith Park. If you're not familiar with L.A., Griffith Park is where the Hollywood sign is. It is in the middle of the city. And P-22 made this miraculous journey to find a new home across two major freeways, the 101 and the 405, which if you are a Southern California person, you know that you don't even want to drive on those incredibly nutty, insane freeways, but this cat somehow made it across them and to find a new home in Griffith Park, but essentially he's kind of trapped and this is why he struggles with his dating life. He's all alone, he's been there since 2012, uh, but there's no other cougar there. And he, I think, made a pretty wise choice in like, I'm not going across those freeways again. There's plenty of deer here. So I'm going to stay put. But the reason he, not just that we love him and, you know, he's kind of a hero to us and that we feel sad and we make Tinder accounts for him because he doesn't have a girlfriend. Um, but he symbolizes the plight of all his mountain lion Relatives in the Greater Santa Monica Mountains, which runs right into Griffith Park, but runs pretty much almost all the way to the the coast, um, you know, uh, to Ventura. If you look on a map, um, the 101 has cut these mountain lines off from uh, the rest of the world. Essentially, is an impenetrable wall, and they are inbreeding themselves out of existence because they can't get they can't get out of the Santa Monica Mountains, and new genetic blood can't get in. So p22 is sort of our poster child for you know why we do need to build things like this monumental wildlife crossing which we're going to be putting across that 101 freeway to reconnect the santa monica mountains uh four mountain lines and all wildlife to the rest of the world so
0: it's, it's so exciting i'll never forget like when they i think i don't know if this is when they first discovered them but when it was like a construction worker right was like working underneath a house in the hollywood hills and like looked up and their p-22 was like sitting there like in the like in the space underneath the house just like staring at him and i mean that picture went viral that's when i first i don't was that when everyone first kind of heard about p-22 or was he known before right, that?
1: i think that was that was big news that where he went like his first headline in the la times was 2012 where mm-hmm. you know with the year he got like the first photos of him got discovered Um, and it literally, he was kind of a local celebrity at the time. The headline was even Mountain Lion, you know, a lot found in Griffith Park. It was Steve Winter, who we can't thank enough. You know, Steve's a international, you know, Nat Geo photographer. He's, you know, photographed all over the world. He's like, I need to get the P-22 in front of the Hollywood sign, which took him 14 months to get that. It's remote cameras. The Hollywood sign's not lit up. You know, P-22 had to go to the, you know, walk in the right place. But when that hit Nat Geo in December 2013, that's when he became sort of an international celebrity. But that incident you're talking about was really interesting. It was actually a a security alarm person goes in this couple's um, crawl space at like 6 a.m. And he comes out like ashen face and says to the couple, like, you have a mountain lion down there. And. And this couple, they are amazing, uh, Jason, uh, Paula and Jason. You know, they're so LA, they're like, cool, we have two cats. We can make room for one more, right? And And I think what this shows to me, what the whole incident showed was just how amazingly, to me as a wildlife person, like LA is okay with native wildlife. And that's a great example because you then had... The neighborhood had to get shut off. You had live news feed on them, like CNN's covering this. Helicopters are flying over, right? Why? Not because of fear, but because it was like if Brad Pitt showed up in your neighborhood, right? Everybody wanted to see him. So um, I just love that about the Los Angeles area and California as a whole, and that I think if you think about other areas of the country, how that would have played out, you would have had a dead mountain lion immediately. But here you had, oh, cool, we want to see him and, and like, let's just give him space so he can get back to Griffith Park. And uh, I think my favorite headline on that, CNN um, was covering it, and their headline was, the mountain lion has left the building. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, that, I mean, also, too, it's kind of funny. Like, I think most people's thoughts on what a mountain lion, you know, you get the same with bears. And like, If you see it, it's going to attack you. But here's a guy that crawled into a tiny crawl space under this building. And, you know, you look at the cat and the cat's like, hey, what's up? Whatever. What, yeah, yeah. Did, did, didn't really show any interest in attacking. Wasn't even didn't even I mean, from the looks, I didn't didn't even look he afraid didn't even of him. Growled. Didn't even he, seem to care. He's just like, Oh, hey, there's a dude over there. What's up? Yeah. You know.
1: He was he, he was just sitting there like, Yeah, let's let me wait for these people to go away so I can get the hell out of here, right? <laughs> um I you know, and I think that's to me what P twenty two has really Done is shown. Really, the facts, the science that 99.999% of wildlife encounters end, find for for both the wildlife and the people. Indeed, most of them end without you even knowing you've had a wildlife encounter. There was a great viral video. Um, I think it was back east, actually, in New Jersey, of a bear walking around a house, he sees people, the people don't see him, and he turns around and moves away, right? Most wildlife got out of their way to avoid us, but even if they don't, they are not. Even mountain lions, who admittedly are really good predators, and I can't even say P-22 would never attack somebody, but the odds are so low, right? Much like with people, most people aren't going to mug you or attack you if you're walking down the street, um, and it's the same with wildlife. Mountain lions, bears—they're not sitting in the woods waiting to attack us. Um, and I, that's what I—I I think that P22s really changed a lot of minds. And for me, it's not about hey, you always—you don't want to treat them like pets, and it's never zero risk, right? Even ticks can kill you, right, yeah. in the right situation, right? But but it's almost no risk, and we shouldn't be living our lives in fear of these encounters. We should actually—I want people to more be awe-inspired, like they are with P22. Um, but I get it. If you're not a biologist like me and no mountain lion behavior, and you come across a big, 120-pound cat with its ears back hissing at you, you probably think, "Oh, oh crap! I'm I'm screwed." But when you learn a little bit about behavior, actually you would know that situation, the cat is scared of you. They're, you're probably in no danger at that point. So I think P22's really been a great ambassador for, listen, we can live alongside these, these creatures very safely. Uh, and uh, the last thing I'll say on this is, I just ask people to put the risk in perspective because we take risks in our own lives every single day that are far greater than being attacked by any species of wildlife. For instance, you know, I'm going to die in the 101. It's not going to be from a mountain lion. Um, You know, we, uh, in mountain lions in California, in the last 100 years, with 40 million people, there's been less than 20 attacks. Now, all 20 of those are people. They're not just statistics, and we don't want it to happen. But 20 attacks over 100 years with 40 million people, like that's, it is way down on your list of worries. But You get in your car every day three to four thousand people a year die in california on our roadways so you know we are okay with that risk um but you know which is a real risk you know you are likely to be injured in your car at some point in your life um so that's all i say on the just put the risk in perspective learn about the wildlife around you and respect it appreciate these wondrous sightings but don't live in fear
3: I wanted to ask you something a little bit about the the overcrossing, the wildlife crossing, because I think the first time I had, you know, like it entered my consciousness that these things even existed, was back in two thousand and one, and I was on the highway between Calgary and Banff, and we passed these mm-hmm. huge wildlife overcrossings. I was, and there was, there's no road or anything around it. It's just kind of out there in the middle of nowhere. And I, I thought wow what is the first you know that my first question what is this what you know and then the next question is oh the how that's so so cool and you know uh, how that came about and and uh you know why do they build this why don't we see more of them and and maybe you could talk a little bit about like how this this crossing in southern california is coming to be and sort of the challenges that are faced because this isn't funded by caltrans is, is that correct
1: Correct. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. That was where I, you know, uh, I came in with our team is we needed to get the money for it. Yep. <laughs> but Caltrans has been an amazing partner. They've always been like, hey, we want to build this, but we have no budget for wildlife crossings. Because to your point, Jeff, you know, wildlife crossings are nothing new. Um, the first one in, uh, we think, in France in the fifties, and and in the U.S., the first crossing uh, was in Florida, actually, of all places. Um, for bears, uh, under undercrosses in Florida, you know, I knock Florida a lot for some of their uh, positions, but boy, environmentally, they've put in hundreds of millions of dollars for the Florida Panther. So, you know, they they really um, over the years have taken the issue of connectivity seriously, uh, which is really impressive. But you had other countries really were way ahead of the U.S. Uh, overseas, like Belgium, the Netherlands. They've been putting in wildlife crossings for decades. And then Banff, the ones you saw were the are sort of the first to go in on our continent as well, and they're they've been the gold standard. In fact, Tony Clevenger uh, is sort of if there's a rock star in the wildlife crossing world, it's him. He worked on those, and he's worked on crossings all over the world. He he helps uh, he helps with ours, which is really cool to work with him. But yeah, most people would see them in Banff, or there are some in. Uh, some of the early adopters here in the United States were ones that were really dealing with roadkill or, you know, uh, dangerous issues um, with elk and, you know, vast migrations of, of pronghorn. So you're looking at Wyoming, Montana. Uh, Nevada has some closer to the, the, uh, here in California. Uh, but the U.S., they really hadn't caught on um, except for a few places. Now they have and uh, I think Liberty Canyons really helped with that because usually these are, like you said, Jeff, they're in the middle of nowhere. Nobody sees them. Nobody knows what they are. Now you get a wildlife crossing that we're building in the middle of the most populated area in the U.S., which three hundred to 400,000 cars a day are going to drive under. Just for perspective, the highest trafficked crossing I can find is about ten to 14,000 cars a day. So these are you know, this is a highly visible project that is inspiring others now. And now you have the federal government putting money uh, in their infrastructure package for them, the state of California. So I, um, you know, Louis Sagan in the LA times article he did on the crossing recently said it's, this will be known as the age of crossings. And I, I, agree with him. Um, but just, um, quickly, uh, you know, this crossing, we are, um, we're funded pretty much. We still have about five to ten million to go, but it's gonna break ground and it wasn't easy. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. It was not easy.
0: <laughs> I, I one kind of famous slash infamous one, you you probably know about it. There was a great daily show piece on it. But I'm from Davis, you know, in Northern California. And they have the frog tunnel. Did you yes, ever see you that have yeah, the I frog don't know. tunnel Yeah, I mean they did a hilarious daily show piece on it. Unfortunately it was kind of making fun of the frog tunnel and liberal people but, you know, I, rem-
1: I remember that, yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: if I can find it, we'll put it in the show notes. But uh, that was my my sort of I think my first introduction to this kind of thing, I, you know. So it wasn't that. But yeah, I also seen those ones in Banff, and they've done a lot of research and, and proven that these that animals really do use them, and I think that's an important thing to kind of get 80, across. Eighty
1: to ninety percent success rates. Yeah, I mean it's it's yeah they work. Like the science is there.
3: Mm-hmm. One of the things that uh, I kind of learned as I was kind of getting prepared for this is that there's undercrossings in California already like there's wildlife undercrossings I've been through a few of them you know like where the PCT crosses under the the 15 uh, highway 15 that sort of thing and those don't have the visibility of an overcrossing and I think what a great opportunity for raising awareness for the plight of mountain lions for example with this this overcrossing overpass Um, what, what can we do to like kind of help, you know, obviously the project itself has visibility, but what can we do to kind of raise awareness for just the general population about the plight of, of wild animals and the need for them to be able to move between spaces and why that's important.
1: Yeah, no, Jeff, you hit on a good thing. Like what can everybody do and not, it's not always about building this, you know, Uh, huge infrastructure. I mean, connectivity, I like to say crossings is a solution to a lack of connectivity, but there's lots of solutions to connectivity that people can be a part of. And yeah, just crossings, you know, California does have um, mostly underpasses. There is one overpass down in the Inland Empire, I think. It, it, It didn't get a lot of attention. I have yet to visit it. I need to. Um, But yeah, underpasses is a lot. Uh, My favorite is, uh, almost to your point Jason, there's up near me, I live outside Yosemite, there's a Yosemite toad crossing uh, where these poor little toads were getting hit. So it's actually a ramp that the toads go under and the, the cars drive over it. It's a great, great crossing. But yeah, I take the responsibility of Liberty a canyon or I, I keep forgetting we need now need to call it the Wallace Annenberg Wildlife Crossing uh, and we can't thank them enough for again getting to that funding question we had to you know fund this from private funding and also from state conservation dollars because Caltrans didn't have a budget but I take that responsibility seriously how can it inspire others and I think it's already doing that but also what can people do themselves for connectivity and we're all part of that um, let's look at a, a, a animal you don't think would benefit from a large crossing like a lizard or a butterfly. They do. Um, all, all wildlife needs connectivity, whether it be fully connected space, like a mountain lion or a fox needs you know, the ability to cross, or a butterfly, like the monarch butterfly needs stopovers right, uh, on their flight. And you know, The monarch's a great example of a species I think we all grew up with here in the millions, this this butterfly's, you know, on its way out if we don't do something. And we can all be a part of that connectivity solution in making sure they have food stops, planting native milkweed, making sure they have places to to either, you know, lay their eggs or eat on their, their mi- migratory journeys. So I, I think it's we we can think you know the little guys and how we can participate. Everybody can plant milkweed. You can put that in an apartment balcony. Uh, it's not always about these big crossings.
3: Talking about uh, butterflies and native plants, you know, it makes me realize that you are definitely friends with Griff because we had that same conversation <laughs> with him on our podcast. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, it's it's definitely. So, Beth, what other animals are you hoping are going to use this particular overpass? Like, what are other animals in the area that you can see flourish or sort of thrive from this opportunity?
1: You know, the quick answer is almost anything that lives there is going to benefit, even plants. And I think this is what, you know, there's a lot that's unprecedented about this crossing. Nobody's ever, you know, aside from being the largest in the world, nobody's ever tried to do this in an urban area you know, all these crossings are in or this urban area. You know, that was a lot of pushback we got thinking, why would you want to do it? Why do you even want wildlife in an urban area? But also what's a little different about our crossing is we don't get much roadkill. We don't get much, uh, many animals hit at this location because it's such a big barrier, they don't even try. And this is from the National Park Service, you know, 20 years of research. They have a lot of GPS data. The animals get to the 101, and they're like, "Uh-uh, and turn around, right? I mean, i I've stood there at two am and I'm like, "I'm not trying to cross that thing, I would die. So what we get more is avoidance, which leads to the problem of this um, genetic, you know, uh, decline in the inbreeding, which at least for you know, the larger animals is playing out quickly. These other crossings, if you didn't put them up, would like the elk go extinct? No, there's you know it, you're just gonna continue to have roadkill. Um, but what is interesting is that same genetic decline that the Park Service is finding in mountain lions, they're finding it in the little guys too—lizards, birds. So the frag- this freeway is creating a barrier for all. It's just that they're not their timeline for extinction is not as short. So we're designing this, again, it looks a little different than other crossings, not just as getting animals across, so you throw some gravel on it and and rocks and get the big guys across, which is perfectly fine for that solution, but we're putting a living ecosystem on top to connect the entire ecosystem. So you're going to have butterflies will use this, and I I hit a lot of butterflies during migration season on the 101, so you're going to give them a migratory path, but they'll also live on it lizards, right? Uh, everything. And when you think of connectivity for something like a lizard, yeah, are they gonna like cross the whole crossing? No. But if you have one population isolated from the rest, that's where the genetic decline comes in. So this will connect populations across a greater area. So almost everything's gonna use it.
2: And then in the LA Times article, it mentioned that the quarter actually extends. It's not just an overpass Like on either side of the freeway that there's actually going to be a corridor that extends on either side can you talk a little bit about how that sort of factors in and what that's going to look like
1: sure and i think this is this is key in that you know to have a successful wildlife crossing the number one thing we know we need is protected space on both sides of it you can't build a crossing and have the wildlife get dumped into a target parking lot right you know it's not going to be successful so that's why this location specifically was chosen in some respects, the animals chose it, and it's it's the only place we could put it. It's the only place in the entire region, in the entire area where there's protected space on both sides of the 101. So it connects, if you look on a map, it's a really interesting um, corridor in that um, it sort of funnels the green space right down to where we're putting the crossing to the last 1,600 feet of protected space. It's like not even a quarter of a mile. Uh, and then it funnels back out. There's plenty of open space. People don't think of the LA area as full of open space. It probably has more open space than any other metropolitan areas. You can be hiking in the Santa Monica Mountains, and it's like you're in Yosemite. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. I actually Griffith Park. I go there three, four days a week. I just ran there this four hours ago this morning. It's amazing, you know. And and I we do the early patrol. We don't see any people, which always surprises me for a city this big and this populated with so many fitness nuts that you go at 6, 7 in the morning and you run on the trails in Griffith Park in the middle of millions and millions of people. And you maybe see three people, you know, but you see I've seen bobcats. There's always almost always owls, you know, hooting at you and like watching you deer, you know, obviously coyotes. I mean, it's kind of a such an amazing thing. Um, but I did have one where exactly I, I thought it was Santa Susana pass up off one eighteen, but it's off the one oh one. Where exactly is it going to be?
1: Yeah, oh. so uh the one eighteen. so if you look on a map, one eighteen is the next freeway yeah. up. And they've actually Caltrans and the Park Service has been making some improvements. There's some underpasses there. There's an equestrian tunnel. We actually do get mountain lines hit more on that one, but more mountain lines make it across. So we're we're looking at fixing that one too. But this one is the one oh one Liberty Canyon. But the corridor connects. We have mountain lines from the Santa Susana area that come down, um, so it's going to connect to Santa Susana. But it's the 101 at uh, in Agora Hills, right next to Calabasas. Everybody's heard of Calabasas. The Kardashians live there. Um, but Agora Hills is the city where this
0: is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's it. my mom lives right by there, so that'll be. That'll oh, so be yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. She's in the west San Fernando Valley. I, I. Uh, okay. So I'm, I'm picturing it in my head. I'm trying to picture it. I drive the 101 a lot, you know. So I'm trying to picture in my head where it's going to be. When yep. I saw the rendering for some reason in my head, it said 118 Santa Susana, but I guess it's a, a little south. Oh north.
1: yeah. In fact, one of the, ma- the renderings we put out showed the 118 a little further north. So that's probably, yeah. That's sorry probably that. what
0: scrambled my brain then. Yeah. When I, but why? no,
1: 118 is one that we need to f- make a solution to as well. And the 126, which is above that. Again, they're not as busy a road. So we have, even though we have more mountain lines hit there, we have more of a success rate at this point, but it's those still need fixing too. Yep. Yeah, we're not, I mean, that's the point to me. Like I might take a little nap, but Liberty Canyon, like it's not okay. Done. Like the five needs help. The fifteen, like yeah. there's just so many places that need, uh, you know, crossing. Uh,
0: this is sounding like if you've seen the Saturday Night Live skit, the Californians. You yes, know, where oh they're my that, God, this, is, like, this is this is true. This is totally like de- like devolved into an episode of the Saturday Night Live skit, the Californians. So, well, that you know,
1: <laughs> any out of town uh, National Wildlife Federation staff that come to LA for like a crossing event yeah. i send them that i'm like learn this yeah. this is how we talk
0: <laughs> yeah so i took the 115 to yeah. the 118 to the to the five yeah know, <laughs> to liberty canyon boulevard <laughs> so another cool thing and again going back to the to the brad pitt of mountain lions is, is you started a really cool event uh, called, I think in fact that's how I first heard of you, you through Griff, because he was down here for for P22 days. You want to tell everyone what that is?
1: Yeah, I mean, as part of this work to get the crossing built, you know, we want to get the the public involved. You know, for me, that's you know, there's the crossing being built, but. It's also about getting people to coexist with wildlife, like we've talked about. And so, you know, I, I definitely am not your typical environmentalist. I have a biology field undergrad, but I have an MBA. I'm, you know, very marketing and, you know, business uh, tech. You know, I bring that into the nonprofit uh, you know, approach as well. And, you know, we knew we wanted to do something kind of fun, right? To to not just for the scientists and the environmentalists, but to get people who seem to love P22. How can we get all these people together? So we started uh, the first P22 day festival in 2016. Uh, we had the uh, city of LA declare October 22nd the official P-22 day every year. And indeed, it's really exciting because that first year we did it, the 22nd was on a Saturday. This year, the 22nd's on a Saturday. So we will be able to have the festival on his actual official day. Uh, And it's great. We had, before the um, pandemic, we had to go virtual. We had uh, almost 9,000 people that last year in 2019. In 2020, we had uh, went virtual. We had the Black Pumas play. We had like 20,000 people tune in. Uh, wow. Governor Newsom talked. Uh, we're looking forward to this year. We, we Looks like we'll be able to go back to in-person. Um, but it's for me it's just amazing that all these people come out to celebrate living with a mountain lion and poor p22 he's in griffith park like not knowing all this attention he's getting
0: (laughs) i I bet also let's let's be honest just to throw it back to griff and not to to oversell him too much but the coolest Mm -hmm. part of p22 days is if you get to see him dancing in person which is like definitely one of the yeah
1: no when we planned the first one and he's been out there almost every year um I'm like Griff, you got to come out and do your bio blitz, buddy. And uh, it, that was really fun to see because a lot of the schools and and you know really important to me is that the schools and the kids have opportunities to connect to P22, and they do. They it's amazing to see how kids all over the actually the country, not just LA. I just you know I've talked to classes from Arkansas and Montana. It's amazing, but. They come out, they do dances to P-22. They do plays as part of P-22 Day. They build wildlife crossings that they exhibit, but uh, they all love Griff and they do, um, what they've done is now part of a lot of these schools that work with us. They do their own BioBlitz dance every year and uh, Griff just loves seeing those.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think kind of a cool thing just that you brought from what you brought up recently Um, You know, because this is kind of a a success story, um, it's kind of interesting that you also approach it from the space of an MBA, which is kind of important, right? I mean, I guess maybe... Talk to people that might have other in other regions, or what do you think people in other places that might want to do a similar thing? And maybe not even an overcross, just, hey, why don't we do this space for a wild space? Or why don't we do this as a local garden? But I think too many people approach these things from like the, the place of an artist or just an environmentalist or a biologist, conservation, et cetera, and don't think of it in practical terms, right? Do you have advice for people on what steps might help them you know, be able to do these larger projects?
1: Yeah, no, and it's funny you ask that, because I get asked more these days to talk about how we did it rather than what we're doing, and I think, you know, the lesson for me, um, first of all, like, we just need to break out of our little silos. I think, you know, that's, um, you know, I'm a a scientist, it's not my day job, but I'm also kind of an animal rights person, I'm also an MBA, and I'm all, you know, I mean, so, like, for me, the biggest thing is, you know, especially for these big, vast projects that need public support and all this funding. You can't just be talking to the choir or preaching to the choir or whatever that, you know. You, you, you can't just be these white environmentalists behind closed doors, you know. Um, so, you know, you need the science. The science is important. And we le- all the decisions we make on what to do at Liberty Canyon is based on the science. But as we know, how many species have gone extinct despite reams of scientific evidence, right? So that's the other side that I think, you know, environmental groups, even my own for a long time, was not very good at, which is the storytelling. Why did any of us get interested in the environment? It wasn't because somebody handed me a science book as a kid, as much as I love science. It's because I read Wind in the Willows or watched Born Free or, um, you know, it was something that captured all of our imaginations and that's the approach we really took and and not just not just that but also respecting this is something that environmental groups uh, even my own for a long time and still do, you know doesn't always do well it is not and this was a learning process for me too um to be it's not about me telling people how to relate to p22 or how to relate to this crossing it is about empowering voices and empowering connections from all over, uh, you know I talk a lot about uh, Warren Dixon, who's become a friend. You know, um, he's a hip hop artist from Watts, and you know, uh, let's give you center stage here. I, you know, it's not all about me. Like, talk about your connection and your song to P twenty two, empowering different voices to get people to care. Because at the end of the day, people making these decisions, whether you're a Caltrans official, whether you're a person deciding to donate. Whether you're, uh, you know, a person who is is doing the construction design on this crossing, whether you're a a person who needs to publicly comment to approve this project, they're all people, and they're all going to make a decision about what they care about. And I think that's the approach we've really taken: is, you know, really building on a movement. In, in some respects, it's not just about the crossing. Like we we've really focused on building a movement around storytelling that will get the next project approved and the next project approved and, and things like that. So I think that to me is the approach, like, an anthropomorphize, oh my God, just get over it, you know, get over that you can't anthropomorphize animals, building relationships with animals, this, this notion that again, was even ingrained in me when I was, you know, 30 years ago coming up in school, animals and people, you know, animals, are don't have personalities they we now know they do and they do have human traits we we are animals so i think that we need to be actually fostering closer relationships with people and animals not telling people to back off it doesn't mean making them pets but you know we, we need to recognize that animals we have more in common uh than than you know i think we were trained for a long time so anyway that's the approach i've taken and and I think it's really, it's worked well, not just for P-22, but for, again, for people to reconsider relationships with wildlife a little differently, which ultimately is, is going to pay off in dividends.
2: Beth, I know P-22 is obviously the star of the story and a great thing to rally around, but how many other mountain lions sort of live in the Southern California environment are going to be able to take advantage of this whole corridor? Yeah, what's of like beyond P-22, what
1: is the, mm-hmm. what are we, what are we looking
2: at? Like the impact that this is going to have on how many?
1: Yeah, no, it's a it's a good question, and he really is a star. I feel like you know, I, I I'm his public spokesperson, so I'm in the news a lot. But I feel like if you watched Entourage, I'm like the Ari, right? I'm like the agent, you know, who's like you know, pushing him to fame. Uh, I sometimes feel like is P22 getting it mad at me? Like, oh my God, like you know, sometimes when I, like when we do who's hotter, Brad or P22 on P22's Facebook page, I kind of picture P22 and Griffith Park, like friggin pratt what is she doing now jesus you know (laughs) Um, but but yeah it's i mean in some respects it's even not about the mountain lions that are there now it's about in perpetuity if we don't do this mountain lions just forever are going to vanish right or at least you know um but yeah what you're talking about he is part of this sort of greater santa monica mountains population and you know they're ghost cats they're good at hiding uh the national park service doesn't ha- even know how many are there. But what we do know, because of science, is mountain lions do not share territory for the most part, and females will overlap a little bit. Uh, they will fight to the death, uh, in some instances, for territories. So they are solitary creatures. So if you kind of do the math on an average mountain lion's home range, 100 to 150 square miles, that population sort of broadly, if you're going from like the coast, Ventura, all the way to Griffith Park, Probably ten to twelve is about the maximum that okay. area can support. Um, so it's not a lot of mountain lions. It's just that, you know, if we don't do something, they will not, they won't be there in the future. But I will say this: but there's also
2: populations uh, north of it, yes, right? But there's also populations on the other side, right? So like the whole point of this is that right now they're trapped in this in this side, and so we know that there's the Angeles National Forest. We know that there's other right. ones all over, and hopefully this kind of Yeah, you're going to have exchange.
1: That. That's what we're trying to facilitate is that yeah. Mountain Lions can disperse yeah. south of the 101 and get up to Los Padres or those Mountain Lions can come in. And what I will say is it is kind of a a house of cards, right, or the domino effect. So if let's say all right, we don't care if the Mountain Lions south of the 101 go extinct, there's Mountain Lions north Well, then that population becomes a little more isolated. They don't have genetic exchange, and so on, and so on. So, you know, what I tell people is, you know, it's not just about uh, cats or, or animals that are endangered. I mean, look at the monarch butterfly. We had millions a few years ago. That thing has, they have collapsed. To me, it's about keeping wildlife here, you know, keeping the common wildlife common, because, you know, these populations, these species, can almost sometimes overnight, you know, get into a critical mass. So let's, let's not wait.
0: (laughs) I think I'm guessing you can speak to this a little more, That also a big part of this is that, you know, now we're doing it and it's very expensive because we're doing it after the fact, like after these freeways are built, but as part of the hope and part of this, a plan to sort of be like a blueprint for when there's future construction and whatever that this is considered, right? Because if you consider wildlife in your plans initially, obviously it's a much cheaper thing to do. And I guess obviously a big part of this hope would be that this is successful. So when people are building the new freeway or are already are planning to expand it, right, that, that, that they take these into account. Is that is that part of your hope? Yeah, Jason,
1: that... you're right on. I want to be out of a job. I mean, yeah. seriously, like, I mean, <laughs> first of all, I'm not a fundraiser. Like fundraising is not my main job. I had, you know, I had to do it for this uh, crossing. But. Yeah, ideally, and what my own organization and others work towards uh, is embedding these in planning and budgets, right, so that you don't have to come in and fix stuff. Um, so I, I think, in Caltrans is already doing that. I think, you know, I, I have to applaud them. There's, I think there's more work to do. But... They already look at when they have to do uh, fixes to some freeways and roads. They look at you know, when they're doing those fixes. Um, but yeah, Liberty would have been a million times easier if that had been put in when the road was built. Liberty Canyon is engineering-wise. I mean, I'm not an engineer, but boy, I've learned a lot. It is a tricky place to put a crossing, but it's all we have. So yeah, if you're you're building these in as you go. Uh, on the other hand, you know, part of the trick is we're not putting in a lot of major freeways anymore. So a lot of these are going to be retro, but not every area is going to be. In fact, I don't think any area is as tricky as Liberty when I look at other places. But what you are seeing is a real groundswell. Um, of support for, for A, putting these in planning documents, but also funding. The federal government put in $350 million as part of their infrastructure package. California last year put in, I think it was 63 million, uh, and more is gonna come. So I think that you are gonna see what you're talking about, um, Jason, is that this is just gonna be a part of transportation, not sort of one-offs.
0: And I think that you hear those numbers and they sound huge. But it's really so small yeah. when you look at, like, the big picture, right? You're talking, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars, not like half a trillion dollars in infrastructure, right, and, and freeways. And this is just a small percentage to sort of, you know, to deal with this. So Yeah, and
1: you look at the cost. I mean, you know, to me, roadkill's not the only measure or, or vehicle conflict because in some respects where there's no roadkill, it can be a bigger problem like where we're at. But it's still a pretty good – but you look at Ted Zoli um, – he's a big person in the wildlife crossing field too. I mean, he estimates $8 billion a year in damage, you know, whether it be your car damages or people in the hospital or, you know, you name it. Um, I mean, if we even took a fraction of that and applied it every year, we could, we could solve most of it. We can't solve all of it. I mean, you're not gonna be able to put a crossing everywhere, but you could solve the majority of this. So, but I'm, I'm hopeful we'll get there. I really do. These are, These are by, you know, we were even making progress, uh, our our National Wildlife Federation during the past administration, who is not that environmentally friendly as we know, but there's something that appeals to this from whatever side of the aisle you're on. Like it's, they are hopeful projects. A lot of environmental projects, I think, or environmental issues like climate change, for instance, like it's hard to wrap around what the solution is and it's very abstract and, you know, for wildlife crossings, there is a magic solution. You put the crossing up and the wildlife cross, and then you can all feel good seeing pictures of the wildlife cross. So I think it's a really tangible thing that the majority of people really do support no matter, you know, what side of the political aisle you're on. So I I think that these are also projects that the public supports, that, that, you know, legislators support. So I do think you're going to see much more funding in the future. Plus they, they come with jobs. Right, I mean, and, you know, they come. They're, they're, you know, I, I kind of see this as like the WPA projects. This would be great, you know, um, when you need to stimulate the economy. These are infrastructure projects.
0: When you were planning this, I understand you, you did some kind of unique things, or some different things, and some kind of d- different design ideas from future ones. you, you want to talk, talk about those a little bit?
1: yeah this is where again, you we get back to this this crossing is unprecedented in many ways. and and that's what I love is that we had decades of wildlife crossing science to inform us, yet we're also doing stuff that will inform more urbanized crossings, right? so uh, and again, I it was it's been really amazing sitting in all these design meetings. I'm not an architect, I'm not an engineer, but I've learned so much about transportation engineering, but also, you know, ecology how do you bring ecology into you know caltrans can build a bridge my god they're the largest transportation country in the uh, transportation agency in the country if not the world they know how to put a bridge up but we had to layer this habitat on top right and we had to ensure that animals would cross it all of us here talking we know to look both ways and we know if we walk over a bridge we're not you know that the freeway is really you know not going to harm us but animals don't know that so to get animals to use it, especially when you're talking 300 to 400,000 cars a day. That's never been done. Most of these wildlife crossings either, like I visited one in Idaho, the guy's like, this is a busy road. We get 10,000 cars a year. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I mean, that's nothing. 300 to 400,000 cars a day. But to make the animals feel safe, uh, there's things you're going to need to do to mitigate that sound, to mitigate light. And not just on the crossing, but on the approach. Um, so, one of the really cool things um, we did, uh, not we, I'm not putting me in that, the, the smart people who know this stuff, I learned a lot about how sound travels. And so, this has, unlike some of these crossings in rural areas, they just have a chain link fence up, right? We have to have these vegetated sound walls um, to absorb sound so it won't bounce off um, and have. In, in, actually deter the approach, right? Uh, You have this thing called the canyon effect, where it could bounce off across the canyon walls. So it's not even so much about the animals on the crossing, it's about animals trying to get to the crossing. The majority of the sound from a freeway, I didn't know this, comes from the tires. So you have to make sure that the sound of the the cars driving under is mitigated. Uh, And then you talk about light Uh, Dr. Travis Longcore in LA, uh, he's amazing. He's done all these light studies and he's taken photos of like what it would look like from a mountain lion's perspective approaching the crossing and where the light pollution comes in, which you want to talk about another form of connectivity. We talked about what everyday people can do to help with connectivity. Turn your lights off. We talk about barriers to connectivity. It's not just cars or, you know, it's fences and lights. Your light can have an enormous impact on bird migrations, on bats, on turn your lights off or get, you know, sort of night friendly skylights that it can have an enormous impact in on terrestrial animals too. Travis did this incredible mapping that showed that P-22's route to Griffith Park was likely defined by light pollution. He would avoid the light polluted areas. So we have to design this crossing to also block out light so the animals don't feel uh, afraid to use the crossing. So it's some pretty cool stuff that, again, has not been done before for this application that I'm really excited about, not just for Liberty, but to help other urban crossings when they get planned. They can use this science.
0: Let's be clear too. We're not telling people to turn their headlights off at night driving. Oh yeah, sorry. Not headlights. <laughs> yeah. Turn your,
1: yeah. Turn your spotlights. on. You don't need them. In fact, it's been proven security wise. It's better to have your house dark, right? That way, if somebody's in there, you know. Yeah, turn off your spot. Yeah, don't turn off your headlights. Sorry. <laughs> oh God. No, That's no, okay. Yeah. Right. Okay, now we have all these accidents, yeah. but yeah, yeah, porch lights. Um, You know, your lights even inside at night, turn them off. Like go as dark as you can, especially at night. Uh, to help with, uh, you know, to, to really help with migrations, but and also just animals in, that are traveling through your area.
0: And, and you're, are you going to, I'm assuming you're going to have like webcams and such things set up as well? Is that part of the plan so people can kind of join in and the, the experience?
1: Absolutely. Uh, just for, even just for groundbreaking, we're going to broadcast that, but we're also going to have uh, a webcam that you'll be able to watch construction And the construction is three years, so if you want to sit there for three years and tune in, uh, we will have a live webcam. You can watch construction. We will have uh, cameras up uh, once it's open for business, uh, for wildlife. Those won't be live, though, obviously, for security reasons. If a mountain lion shows up, we don't want people running there to try to see it. But we will be sharing that with some time lapse of animals that use the crossing, so that'll be pretty cool. Yeah. Pat, this has been amazing. Thank oh, you so much. Oh no, thank much. you this for is, having me. It's you. very exciting. I'm I'm, you know, and, I'm trying yeah. to get like I feel like I won't fully relax till so that shovel goes in the ground, but uh once it does yeah oh my god I, i'm i'm i think i'm too exhausted to be too <laughs> celebratory you know it's like okay give me that mark well, on you're... groundbreaking and then i'm gonna be like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah awesome
2: well hopefully you're incredibly proud of yourself if nothing yes. else for how far but, this you know because yeah. yeah. you've done an amazing thing
1: for me it's just more like okay this mountain lion population isn't gonna go extinct i think that's um you know, what the relief I'm feeling, right? Not so much pride, but just, okay, they're not going to go away. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> Again, well, thanks so much, Beth. It's, it's been awesome yeah, talking no, to you. Yeah, no, thank you
1: and- all for doing the show.
0: Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media. On Instagram at almostthere_ap underscore AP or the Almost There Adventure podcast on Facebook. You can find severia at adventure us women that's adventure u.s women jeff at the soquel hiker or me at the muir project our title track almost there is performed by opus orange and is provided courtesy of emoto for more about this episode and all of our others make sure to check out the show notes on our website almost podcast.com On the next episode, for our fourth and final episode of our annual celebration of women in the outdoors during Women's History Month, we talk to the American Lung Association's Climb for Clean Air founder, Nashra Mazar. As always, thanks for listening.